This is the sound of turning ideas into software. This is the sound of engineering and passion. Work. Work more. Work harder. Experiment. Build. Break. And build again. Write code. Improve it. Job done. Celebrate. Insurance. Finance. Retail. Defense. Robotics. Energy. Amethyx. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Amethyx Technologies based in Belgium. Today, I'm not alone. And not only that, we are going to discuss about fake data that looks, feels, and behaves like production. I am with the folks of uh, Tonic AI, Anders Steele, and uh, Shannon Bayatpur. <laughs> Shannon, how are you doing today? Doing good, thank you. <laughs> I, I keep mi- mispronouncing your your surname, probably. Bayatpur, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Thank you. <laughs> Apologies for that. Hey, Ander, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Francisco. How are you? I'm very, very good. Thank you so much. Uh, so, Ander is a data scientist and a mathematician with a passion for privacy. And uh, he also is the lead data scientist at Tonic AI. And uh, he's going to tell us a lot more than this in a, in a few minutes. Uh, Shannon, however, is a product manager with a background in uh, technical writing and, of course, computer science. Uh, Shannon has a long experience uh, you know, supporting product development at uh, uh, many companies. And probably uh, she's definitely better than me in telling uh, where she has been so far. So, Shannon, let's start with you. Uh, introduce yourself to the listeners of the show. Great. Um, yeah, so I'm a product manager at Tonic, and I'm focused on Tonic's synthetic data offerings. Um, yes, and like Francesca said, I, I previously worked at companies like IBM and MarkLogic in the database space, and I live in the Bay Area in California. How about you, Lander? Yeah, thank you. Um, right, so I'm lead data scientist here at Tonic. Uh, in my previous life, I was uh, an academic mathematician uh, doing uh, number theory. Uh, but for the past odd number of years, I've been uh, focused on machine learning and data science. And here at Tonic, working on synthetic data and you know private fake data, uh, trying to, to make useful data for developers and data scientists. This is very cool. And uh, now that you mentioned fake data or synthetic data, uh, I mean, the question is, I want to I be very direct with you. Why do we need fake data? We, don't we already have fake news? <laughs> <laughs> Great question, yeah. And I'm, as I'm sure you know, many in the audience probably know from watching the news, uh, data breaches and exposures are, are on the rise. And, and that is really linked to, to the need for fake data. So Recently, one example is that an electrics retail, electronics retailer had to break the news to their customers that customer information had been exposed through a public GitHub repository. So names, email addresses, physical addresses, and all the order de- details were all exposed. Um, so it turns out this all happened because they were using actual customer data rather than dummy data for testing purposes. So um, another aspect is that at the same time, there have also been more government regulations. So for example, GDPR, some of you might have heard of that, um, passed in recent years to protect personal information. The result is that in many cases, um, what this means is production data is no longer safe, and sometimes it's not even legal to access. So uh, this poses real challenges to getting work done, which is really where, where the need for fake data comes in. Um, so particularly for developers, QA, and data scientists. So, um, for example, imagine there's there's eBay. It's an auction site. It has 
100, you know, 1.5 billion listings on its website. And eBay's always been serious about protecting the privacy of their buyers and sellers, but they also need to test every website update with realistic data to evaluate the quality and, and catch as many bugs as possible. So for them, the challenge of creating fake data that's representative of all their use cases, but also small enough to use during development, it's a very complex problem. They, they, um, they really can't use a production database also because it's too, too large. Um, so, it, and fake data is not just useful for developers. You also, um, you know, imagine you're building a machine learning model for a financial institution. So you're, you're trying to, uh, you know, assess the likelihood homeowners under 30 will default on their mortgage or something like that. Um, so that's very sensitive data. And, and it's in the company's best interest to use fake data if at all possible. And if teams are working across different countries and there's regulations like GDPR that come into play, then it's also a legal requirement as well. So um, kind of we're going back to fake data. Um, so fake data is a way to address that challenge of data access. It usually involves taking a source data set and then creating a new data set that's similar enough to the source that you can't distinguish between the two. That's the goal. Um, but it also needs to be different enough to protect privacy. So you want it as similar as possible without any private data leaking through. Yeah. So, I mean, I want to point out the fact, you know, in fact, what you just said that, um, you know, the necessity of fake data or synthetic data is not only to protect privacy uh, of individuals, but also, for example, uh, industrial secrets or confidential data, you know, generally speaking. Uh, now, my question, uh, probably to Ander, who's the mathematician here, uh, is uh, about, you know, how can we actually do that? Because uh, I believe there is some kind of trade-off between what I would call the utility of the data and the amount of, I would say, obfuscation or whatever you, you want to call, you know, that, that particular characteristic of hiding uh, the real essence or the real uh, uh, geometry, if I can say that word, of the data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How is that possible? Exactly. Well, I mean, it largely depends on two things. <clears throat> um, one, it depends on how private to, does this data need to be? What's your threat model? Like, what are we trying to protect this from? At the same time, it also depends on how useful does this data need to be? Like, what sort of queries are we going to ask of it? You know, if, if we're working with geolocation data, for example, and we want some sort of, you know, we want to answer queries about like, what are popular restaurants in a particular area, then we don't need to necessarily know how like an individual's trajectory through time um, necessarily behaves in, in, in great detail. Like you don't need to know, for example, that my cell phone is at my house at 3 a.m. Um, and that's not going to help you with your targeting, you know, algorithms for figuring out, you know, good recommendations. So there, there's a, the point is that there's some information here, which is highly detailed about people, which may not be useful uh, for the, the types of questions that you're asking. And so there's room for, for you know, potentially reducing uh, the information in your, your data set to something at a more aggregate level. And so you can try to hide people in, in, a, in the crowd, essentially. And so you know, that's a very high level answer of, of how you know, one might hope to do this. But you know, I'll point out that there are a lot of challenges about making this data private and useful, right? So you know, back to the location data, right? We have these surveillance devices, our cell phones in our pockets all the time. They're you know, constantly reporting out location as well as our you know, all sorts of metadata about us. And the custodians of this data are you know, 
sometimes trying to, to protect it by, you know, if they, for example, sell this data, they may obfuscate our, our names and, and addresses and obvious identifiers. Uh, but, but that's usually not enough, of course, to, to protect the privacy of our, our data because you know, the story that the data tells might be revealing. All right. So the point is that you can, you can, depending on the complexity of your data, you might be able to protect the privacy of individuals in it by just you know, removing things like, like names, addresses, et cetera. Or you may have to work a lot harder to try and uh, essentially model up the story and the narrative of the data. And, and in fact, I mean, from a practical, a practical perspective, we can have a situation in which, for example, by, I would say, stripping away or obfuscating some, let's say, features or columns in our uh, uh, very uh, data-rich table, uh, and by keeping other columns, for example, the, the way we correlate these columns, you know, we still have the capability to re-identify this data, right? So even if we, right. we think... It, exactly. Yeah, so even if we thought, Exactly, yeah. We, we think we cleaned everything. We think we obfuscated maybe the name or or the address, but eventually, you know, by narrowing down to many other features, we can still point to the same individual living in that area. You know, I'm just making this up. Exactly right. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's basically the story. And I think, I don't know, I like to think of it in terms of, you know, the dimensionality of this data. When you have this incredibly rich micro data about people, this is, you know, Think of this as you know, some extremely high-dimensional uh, data point about an individual. You can essentially, by knowing some coordinates or some values of this data, isolate this point in this high-dimensional space because they're very far away. Right. So, Ander, what are, uh, you know, I believe there are different approaches, different methodologies when it comes to the mathematics and to the statistics behind this, uh, uh, these methods. Right. Uh, what are different approaches to synthesizing data? Right. So now, you know, we're going to try and protect these, these points by like making new points. We want to blur these points in this high dimensional space together. And there are a few ways we can try and do this. One, we sort of, you know, mask some of the coordinates. We can reduce the dimension of this, this space by, you know, essentially truncating information. Um, okay. So obfuscating things like, like location, um, uh, to a certain uh, precision. That's one way of doing this. Uh, you can also try to now synthesize new data, and you can do this in a couple of different ways. You use these, what I would call rule-based methods, where you essentially try to describe a generative process of the data. And in certain types of data, this, this is you know, easier than others. Like you know, phone numbers, it's easy to synthesize phone numbers. We, we know what the rule for that is. Um, or credit card numbers. Or credit card numbers. I, I, I exactly. like... I prefer credit card. <laughs> Can we generate credit cards well, numbers and, that are full and, eventually? Well, and that's a little more interesting, right? Because there's like some checksum <laughs> there that has to has to be valid. But you know, right. again, it's a, there's 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 some sort of well understood rule uh, for making that data. But then, if you get more complicated things where you're trying to, you, know, you don't really understand all the stories that are in your data. Like a different approach is maybe to use model based methods, where you essentially you know train some sort of generative model uh, of varying levels of complexity to reproduce um, some of the stories in your data. And you know, it could be as simple as like, you know, if you have one particular column that you're trying to model, it could be you know, approximate it with some simple univariate distribution. Or if you're trying to understand relationships between different numeric columns, then you could approximate it with some you know, kind of linear correlation and, and, and sample from that. Um, 
like, you know, basically like a Gaussian copula or something, or, you know, you could do something really sophisticated as you could throw this kind of mixed, you know, heterogeneous data at some big neural network and try to learn an approximate probability distribution representing your data. So would that fall in the realm of uh, what gener generative models or uh, artificial neural Yeah, exactly. Like uh, unsupervised learning generative models. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, really cool work going on there. We've seen all the, I, I think everyone's probably familiar with all the um, kind of striking successes of GANs, particularly in image right. data, right? You, you, you throw a bunch of images at human of human faces at this generative adversarial network. And then at the end of the day, you, you produce this, this generative model that's capable of making new faces uh, that are extremely high. Right. But I, re I recall that, uh, for example, generating categorical data is going to be a, a problem with GANs. Uh, the GANs work, work yeah. very well on, on images and probably also uh, sound, audio in general, uh, and continuous data. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. But right, as soon as you, you throw kind of discrete stuff at this, hmm. this, you know, this setup, right there, it's really easy for the discriminator network to, to pick up on, well, um, this, this real label is hard, and this right. generated label is soft, or and you can modify that. But the kind of jumping between discrete steps is a hard problem for these yeah. things. Um, so there's different ways around it. But I, I don't know, I, I'm a big, bigger fan of like, things like variational autoencoders or, or diffusion networks, which are a little more stable to train, a little easier to understand the dynamics right. of. And, uh, and to close, let's say, the chapter on the, on the, on the, <laughs> on the generative models, uh, what type of data do you guys uh, try to generate or, or synthesize um, at Tonic? Yeah, great question. Let's bring it back to, to, to what we're doing, which is concretely, we're focusing on, on tabular data and relational databases for the most part. Like that's, that's where we're um, kind of applying all, all these different techniques, these rule-based synthesis techniques, these, you know, masking techniques, as well as these, you know, fairly sophisticated generative modeling techniques using variational autoencoders, all to make, you know, tabular data sets, which again, look and feel like production and can be used in place of this data, you know, for your, your developer testing, uh, or even, you know, for prototyping ML models, we have some some cool case studies on you know, how you can generate examples of, of data, which, um, you know, for example, predict, we want to predict house prices uh, from some data set, which involves a bunch of features like you know, location and different uh, attributes of the house, like you know, square footage, et cetera, et cetera. You can make a very realistic version of this data set uh, using these variational autoencoders, and then you know train machine learning models on that uh, data set uh, to get similarly performant uh, results uh, as you would on the original data set. I see. So, I mean, my next question is probably about uh, Tonic as a you know as a product. Uh, I'm really interested in knowing how does Tonic work. Uh, Let's assume I'm a, cl a client, a customer who wants to use Tonic tomorrow. What am I supposed to do? Great. Um, yes. So first, let me just give a really quick introduction to Tonic. Um, so it's been around since 2018. It's based in Atlanta and San Francisco. And we work with companies of, of all different industries with sensitive and restricted data. So 
The mission of Tonic is to protect the privacy of individuals while enabling companies to get some stuff done. Um, so in terms of you know how the product works, what you, what you need to get started. So Tonic integrates directly with the databases themselves. So you connect Tonic to to your source to your source database, um, and this is a benefit because it enables Tonic to maintain referential integrity and create fake data that is structured exactly the same as the source data. So those tight integrations are, are what makes it possible for Tonic to create realistic data um, that also looks and feels like the original. We also support some delimited files such as CSVs and data lakes. Um, most of our customers run Tonic in their own environment because they're working with very sensitive data. So it's self-hosted. You can deploy Tonic wherever you want, um, your own environment if you're on-premise or in AWS or another cloud environment. We also have a hosted offering, but most of our customers prefer to keep it within their own firewalls. Um, so the idea is that they generally your, your data stays with you. We never access your systems. Everything works entirely inside your own environment. Um, and overall, you know, the, in terms of how it's structured, it, it's like an ETL. So you'd point Tonic at a source database, and then you also need to point Tonic at an output database of the same type. And this is where Tonic's going to store the synthetic version of your production database. Yeah, that's that sounds very very easy. Uh, I mean, I I definitely don't want to be a statistician or have a couple of statisticians on in the on the team just to use these things or synthesize data. That's for <laughs> sure. Uh, neither uh, a, a bunch of engineers, uh, data engineers, you know, to build all these connections for me. You know, I would like to have something that is indeed very easy to use, very easy to plug in whatever system I have already on prem or uh, in a private cloud. Uh, that's for sure. Are there other features of Tonic AI that I should be looking for? Yeah, so, you know, especially your comment on an overall usability, a lot of our customers do comment about how overall simple Tonic is easy, it, easy it is to use overall. Um, so the idea is that once you've connected to a database, Tonic is going to do a surface level scan of your data set. So this is um, where Tonic provides automatic recommendations about what needs to be identified. So um, for example, it would detect, oh, these are emails, and then, you know, suggest that you might want to de-identify them. The second thing you do is you choose a strategy to use to de-identify that data. Um, so you, maybe you want model-based, like Andrew explained, or, or, or rule-based, or a mix of the two, um, depending on your needs in the use case. So, um, so for example, you know, if you were trying to generate synthetic data to predict housing prices, you'd want to apply our AI-based generator to all the columns that might impact price. So like square footage, location, those all impact price. Um, so they're important to, to include there. Um, this generator would preserve the probability distributions of the underlying data and the complex relationships between the columns that you could really rely on the, the data um, to, say, create machine learning models or, or figure out analytics questions. Um, but there are also other columns. So for example, buyer name and seller name. So these aren't these might not be relevant to your analysis, but they're still sensitive and need to be protected. So for those columns, we also have an extensive list of rule-based masking generators to protect names and other data that falls into that category. So one of the strengths is you can really mix and match depending on what the needs of your use case are. Um, and the, the third thing is that you generate the data. And uh, so it's a simple click. <laughs> and the output is the, a, a data set in your, your output database that tells the same story as your source data. Makes sense. I mean, I don't want to sound too critical here, but what's unique about Tonic? Because I believe there are, I would say, competitors or similar products out there. Uh, we don't need to mention who the competitors are, but what do you guys think is 
you know, something that only Tonic AI has? Yeah, that's a great question. I think Tonic does a really good job of, of seamlessly blending these, these different ways of, of protecting your data. It makes it easy um, to out of the box um, use these simple generators, which we have, you know, things like phone numbers or, or you know, social security numbers, or these complicated, you know, model-based uh, techniques where you don't really need a data science team or, you know, a team of statisticians to make realistic looking data that can be used for a variety of purposes. Um, in addition to that, you know, we employ like different techniques such as differential privacy to protect, um, to provide formal uh, mathematical guarantees of privacy uh, on some of your data. Um, and we do all this to make it, you know, very easy, right? We, again, we don't need, uh, we're not trying to uh, uh, <laughs> make you get a bunch of statisticians to, to synthesize new data for your developers. We're, we're intended to make this uh, easy uh, and accessible for all. I have a question more out of curiosity. Uh, what's the vo what's the volume of data that you guys synthesize? Like, is there a, a limitation on the volumes, or how long would it take for a model to to fake my data? Yeah, so it depends on on what sort of stuff you're using. Um, you know, if you're using using these model based techniques, and you're you're largely, you know, one of the the limiting factors is is how long it takes to train a model, and there, you know. If you're using GPU hardware, then it's a little faster. Um, but typically, for a lot of our customers, you know, the the limitation is really I/O. Um, you know, we have customers that are operating at massive scale. I mean, eBay is an example. Uh, Shannon, you probably know the kind of scale numbers a lot better than I do. Um, but you know, working with with terabytes of data is is fairly typical. Um, so the, the real oh. question is, you know, how, how fast is your, your, uh, you know, RDB? Right. Because all this of course happens in on, on premise. So the, on the hardware that the customer in fact dedicates exactly. uh, to, to that. Okay. Makes exactly. sense. Interesting. Well, yeah, that was just my curiosity. I believe that people out there would would have asked quite similar questions. I I, I hope. <laughs> uh, and speaking about people, I believe there are people behind all this, right? <laughs> there is a team. There should be one. <laughs> yeah, no, we are we are growing quickly, um, and we're you know remote first company now. Um, sort of grown up during the uh, uh, pandemic, and so we have hubs and. SF, we have hubs in uh, uh, New York and Atlanta. Um, the the founding engineers are, 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 are ex Palantir and, and Tableau, and so we have a lot of great talent on the team. Um, you know, a bunch of PhDs like my team is a you know <laughs> we have another mathematician on the team as well. Um, so you know, it's a tremendous uh, group of people. I think we just welcomed five people on Monday uh, to the team. So, you know, I don't even oh, know wow. how many people we have now, but it's at least 70. So, uh, <laughs> which, which brings me uh, to, to an advertisement. We do have a bunch of uh, open positions. Uh, if you go to our website, uh, www.tonic.ai, then uh, take a look at our, our jobs board because we are definitely looking to continue growing. 
This is great. And uh, I'm sure there, there's someone out there uh, who's interested in uh, uh, helping you out with fake data and uh, all these cutting edge technologies and machine learning models to uh, solve such a, a challenging problem, in fact. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's very it is, hard. It is. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, this was, this was cool. This was great. Thank you so much, guys, for being here on the show. I really appreciate and uh, had a lot of fun. I hope that the people out there uh, will have yeah. a lot of fun, as much fun as I had having this conversation with you. <laughs> of course, I take the chance to uh, invite you to the official Discord channel. Uh, you will find the link on the official website, datascienceathome.com. And together with the link, of course, we'll also post all the links that are relevant to relevant to this uh, to this episode in the show notes of this episode as well. Uh, so the links about uh, Tonic AI and, of course, some uh, I believe blog posts or uh, some uh, social media channels, uh, the career page, as uh, Ander already announced. Uh, they are looking for. Uh, the, well, they have an open position, of course, and uh, you will find all this information in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, and uh, good luck. Thank you, Francesca. This is great. Thank you. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.